welcome to the Penguin Podcast. Hello, this is Roy at Penguin, and I'd like to welcome you to this episode of the Penguin Podcast, an episode exclusively concerned with mischief, skullduggery, ne'er-do-wells, and, occasionally, cold-blooded murder. Yes, it's our crime episode, where we'll be featuring master of intrigue and espionage John le Carré, listening to the man behind a new translation of Fyodor Dostoevsky's seminal Crime and Punishment, and catching up with the adventures of the legendary Inspector Maigret. Barry Forshaw will also be introducing us to two hotly-tipped new crime writers. We'll talk to the crime-writing duo known as Karen Perry and hear an extract from best-selling Chinese spy thriller Decoded. Never before has so much wretched corruption and villainy promised so much entertainment. We begin with spy fiction extraordinaire, John le Carré. His latest book, A Delicate Truth, has just been released in paperback. On its release in hardback last year, the novel's themes of surveillance, conspiracy and whistleblowing seemed relevant. Now, in a post-Edward Snowden world, they seem positively prescient. Here's an extract from the audiobook, read by the master himself. On a sunny Sunday, early in that same spring, a 31-year-old British foreign servant, earmarked for great things, sat alone at the pavement table of a humble Italian café in London's Soho, steeling himself to perform an act of espionage so outrageous that if detected, it would cost him his career and his freedom. Namely, recovering a tape recording illicitly made by himself from the private office of a minister of the crown whom it was his duty to serve and advise to the best of his considerable ability. His name was Toby Bell, and he was entirely alone in his criminal contemplations. No evil genius controlled him, no paymaster, provocateur, or sinister manipulator armed with an attaché case stuffed with hundred-dollar bills was waiting round the corner. No activist in a ski mask. He was, in that sense, the most feared creature of our contemporary world, a solitary decider. Of a forthcoming clandestine operation on the Crown Colony of Gibraltar, he knew nothing. Rather, it was this tantalising ignorance that had brought him to his present pass. An extract from the audiobook of A Delicate Truth, available now. The Alan Lane imprint of Penguin is the leading publisher of non-fiction, from politics to philosophy to current affairs and beyond. Since its inception in 1967, however, Alan Lane has never published a novel. Until now. March saw the release of a translation of Decoded by Mai Jia, a best-selling Chinese author and probably the most popular author in the world that you've never heard of. It tells the story of Rong Jinzhen, one of the great codebreakers in the world, until he makes a fateful mistake and descends through the world of cryptology into madness. In this extract, Shenzhen is taken from university to his new life in Special Unit 701. As Rong Jinzhen was bundled half asleep into the car and driven away from the university at dawn on that summer's day in 1956, he had no idea that the arrogant man sitting next to him would force him to spend the rest of his life 
working in the heartbreakingly difficult and secretive world of cryptography. He also did not know that his companion, who his fellow students laughingly referred to as the gimp who had danced in the rain, was in fact a very important, if mysterious, individual, the head of the cryptography section of Special Unit 701. Or, to put it another way, from here on in, he was going to be Rong Jin Jen's immediate superior. After the car had been driving for a while, the boss decided that he would like to talk to his new subordinate, but perhaps because of the sorrow of parting, he could not get a word out of him. The clear light of the car headlights shone in the darkness ahead of them and lit up the road. A strange and unlucky feeling enveloped them. Just as dawn was breaking, the car drove out of the city limits and came out on National Highway XX. This alarmed Rong Jinjian very much, and his head whipped from side to side. He thought, aren't I supposed to be staying in the same city? The address was a local post box, number 36. Why are we going on a national highway? When Jung the Gimp had taken him yesterday afternoon to complete the paperwork to do with his hiring, the car had turned again and again, not to mention the fact that for fully ten minutes they had insisted that he wear dark glasses so he could not see where they were going. But he could have sworn that at no time did they leave the city limits. Now the car was whizzing along the highway, he realised that they must be going somewhere very far away. Puzzled, he asked, Where are we going? To the unit. Where is that? I don't know. Is it far? I don't know. Aren't we going to the same place as yesterday? Do you know where you went yesterday? I'm sure it was somewhere in the city. You have already infringed the oath you swore, but no buts. Repeat the first part of the oath you swore. Everywhere I go, everything I see and hear is accounted classified information, and I'm not allowed to mention it to anyone. In future, you had better remember it. From here on in, everything you see and hear is top secret. That was a reading from Decoded by Mai Jia, which is out now. You're listening to The Penguin Podcast. Karen Perry is actually the pseudonym for Paul Perry and Karen Gillise, the crime-writing duo whose first book together, The Boy That Never Was, is set to be a big hit. We managed to get them both in the studio to talk about the major themes in the book and what it's like writing together. But first, Karen gives us a synopsis of the story. The Boy That Never Was is about a couple, Robin and Harry, who have a three-year-old son, Dylan, and they're living this very carefree existence in Tangier when one day disaster strikes and an earthquake hits Tangier and their son, Dylan, is killed. And then five years later, they have moved back to Dublin and they're trying to pick up their lives again when one day in the middle of a protest march in Dublin city centre, Harry, the father, sees a boy who he is convinced is his dead son, Dylan. So the book is really about what actually happened to Dylan. Um, And I suppose it's a scenario about what happens to a couple when something terrible happens to them, um, where one party to the marriage bears some responsibility for what has happened. So it's about guilt as well, as much as it is about grief. And uh, I'm sure many of our listeners will be intrigued by the fact that you are a writing partnership. How exactly did that come about? Initially, um, myself and Karen decided to write the book. Uh, We had an idea, Um, but how to go about it? And the very first chapter that was written uh, was after we had met to discuss the novel. 
and I happened to be in Dublin City in November of 2010 with the snow falling, a helicopter flying above us and a demonstration taking place in the, on O'Connell Street, right in the centre of, of uh, Dublin City. And I thought, this, this is the scene of the opening chapter. And I went home and I wrote it and I sent it to Karen and lo and behold, within the week, there was chapter two was there and we were on our way. And how do you divide the work up? Well, I suppose the whole thing was a learning process. We, we saw it initially as a writing experiment. Um, when we initially decided to write together, it was kind of a, a conversation in a pub, really, <laughs> you know, over a couple of pints. Mm. Uh, we, we thought it might be fun to write a book together. So we didn't really know properly how to go about it. And we decided we wanted to do a dual narrative um, that I would write the wife and Paul would write the husband. So we broke it up that way. We each took responsibility for the individual characters. And, uh, and, and so we did what I call a relay write. So Paul would write one chapter, send it to me. I would write the next chapter, send it to him and so on until we had a first draft. And then after a couple of drafts, we would actually swap over. So I would rewrite his chapters. He rewrote mine. Um, but we met a lot and talked a lot about the characters and about the situation. And so I think most of the creativity came out of those meetings and those conversations, um, really trying to put ourselves in the position of these people. You know, what would you do? What would you do if you were in such a situation where, you know, your husband had left your, your child alone for 10 minutes and during that 10 minutes, disaster strikes and the child is killed? How do you go on with your marriage after that? How do you live with that person? How do you forgive them and continue to, to love and to build a marriage and build a life? Um, and uh, these were the kind of questions that we would that we would put to each other. And these were the things that really interested us. So what elements of The Boy That Never Was lend themselves, do you think, to a more orthodox crime or thriller novel? Well, there's a central question as to what happened, Dylan. And uh, there's the mystery over whether the boy that Harry has seen is actually his son. So I think the mis- there's a mystery element throughout the novel and we don't find out until the end what happens. And there is also uh, a twist. Yeah, well, it's very twisty. But uh, I think there's also a kind of an element of, of a chase throughout the novel. I mean... From from chapter one, when, when Harry sees this child, it's like he's racing to find this boy throughout the book. And at the center of it all, you know, if there is this boy and if he is alive, then there is a real sense of urgency that he needs to be found very quickly, that Harry's time frame is actually quite short um, between his sighting and if he can actually find the boy. So I think that's quite, that lends itself to the more traditional crime novel, this sense of, of this urgency mm. throughout the book. And how much uh, did the plot change as you were writing it? Was that very much established when you set out? Is the book, the final result, very much what you envisaged when you set out? Or was it quite a malleable process? I I think that when you write with someone else, the plot naturally deviates from what you had originally planned. Because while we at the beginning we would sit down and we would work out plot, we also gave each other a certain amount of freedom to you know to deviate from the plot if it felt right and and particularly when you're writing with another person in the manner in which we did kind of an element of competition enters it and i think that when you read the boy that never was particularly the the latter half of the book it gets very twisty 
And I think that that's that's because there are two writers, you know, so we're each trying to trying to match each other. And so it's not enough to have one twist, then there must be another one and another one. So that was really exciting. Uh, it was a really exciting part of the writing process. The Boy That Never Was has been fantastically well received by uh, reading groups and also just been selected by uh, Radio 2 for their book club. What do you think it is about the book which has made it so popular for discussion? Well, I mean, first of all, the, a missing child that reappears. Um, second of all, the marriage, a dysfunctional marriage with two frustrated um uh, partners in that marriage. I think that's so. It is. It is a kind of. Uh, it, it's a look at a marriage as well. So I think those two things. I think there are also moral quandaries in this novel that people will be able to relate to and will have quite strong opinions on. I think. I mean, women can ask if they were Robin, how could you stay with him? You know, would you stay with him? And uh, if you were a man, you could ask, well, you know, how would you how would you cope? In the aftermath of something like that happening, how do you pick yourself up and and carry on? And what's next in the pipeline for Karen Perry? We've just finished a new book, so uh, we've we've written a new book. Um, it's got a working title, mm-hmm. which is "The Girl in the River," and uh, it is set again in Dublin, and it's also set in Kenya, and um, it is also a thriller. And it's also an inspection of friendship, the past, and and also desire. I suppose desire is in both novels and how people respond to temptation that is outside of the bounds of marriage, I suppose. Paul Perry and Karen Galise, a.k.a. Karen Perry, talking about their debut novel, The Boy That Never Was, which is out now, as is the audiobook of The Boy That Never Was. No crime podcast is complete without travelling to Scandinavia, where the hugely popular Nordic noir genre is headed by the likes of Stieg Larsson, Joe Nesbo and Jussi Alla Olsen. Swedish writer Karin Jahatsen joined the Penguin roster last year with the first book in the Hamabu series, The Gingerbread House. This year, Detective Chief Inspector Connie Sherbury continues to lead the investigation in the second book in the series, Cinderella Girl. Here's an extract from the audiobook, read by Candida Gubbins. She went back over to the turning area. The barrier was almost ready now. Out of habit, she took a look in the bin she passed as she came out onto the path again. Nothing special. It was not her job to root in bins and look for tracks in the grass. Staff and Holgersson and their colleagues could take care of that. I'm taking off now she called to Staff, who was standing further down on the hill. You know where to reach me. The woman at number 10 knows you're coming. Good luck. Thanks. We'll be in touch, Staff answered, raising his hand in farewell. A little further away, Holgersson was standing on the lawn, looking after her with a smile that was hard to interpret. With a slight shiver, she turned around and started walking towards the allotments. Without really knowing why, she stopped by a municipal sandbox containing sand to grit icy roads that was behind a fence she passed. She went to the gate, opened it, and walked over to the sandbox. She pulled the end of the sleeve of her hoodie down over her fingers, and with the cloth between her hand and the plastic, cracked open the heavy lid. 
She remained standing like that for a few seconds before she let the lid down with a bang. Holgersen, staff, Petra Vestman shouted. You'll have to expand the cordoned off area. I think I found the mother. That was from the audiobook of Cinderella Girl by Karin Jahatsen, read by Candida Gubbins, and that audiobook is available now. Joining us again on our podcast on crime is Barry Forshaw, the definitive expert on crime writing and author of The Rough Guide to Crime. Joining him are two debut writers who we're putting our money on being big hits in the crime fiction world. We have MJ Arledge, whose book Eeny Meeny is sure to make you question just how far your heroism, bravery and indeed morals will stretch. And also Jake Woodhouse, who takes crime to a brand new city. We may think of Amsterdam as a liberal city where everything and anything goes, but Jake sets the limits in After the Silence. I'm Barry Forshaw. I'm the author of The Rough Guide to Crime Fiction, which is a penguin book. And I'm here with two of my fellow Penguin authors, who are Jake Woodhouse and MJ Arledge, who I will be calling Matt during this interview. I've written the following strap lines for their editor, so this gives some kind of an introduction to them. Jake Woodhouse, After the Silence. If the utterly enthralling first volume in Jake Woodhouse's Amsterdam Quartet is any indication, this looks set to be one of the key sequences in modern crime fiction, with Amsterdam itself a major character. So then I had to write something about Matt Arledge, which had to be very different, and I've written the following. M.G. Arledge, Eeny Meeny, with an orchestration of tension that's always fluid and cinematic. M.G. Arledge's debut novel grabs the reader by the throat, as does his single-minded, unconventional policewoman, Helen Grace, with her unorthodox sexual tastes. So we probably will get onto them at some point. Uh, I'd like to start, if I may, with you, Jake, and I'd ask you the following question. What's the pitch of your book? How did you persuade Penguin to publish you? Um, the, the pitch was really to, to be doing a crime series based um, in Amsterdam, which I think is a, it's a fascinating city. Uh, it's, it's a culture which, from the outside, we've always viewed as being um, permissive and very liberal, Whereas I think the Dutch don't quite see it that way. They see themselves as being more pragmatic. So their approach to uh, legalising soft drugs, for example, it's not because they want people to take them. It's they want to separate soft drugs from hard drugs. And it just occurred to me um, that it would be a fantastic place to explore crime with this very different attitude. It's very interesting, this attitude of countries that we think of as liberal, such as the Swedes, who say we are no more liberal in sexual terms than, say, Britain, yeah, which comes I, uh, as a shock to us. Yeah, and, and that's the thing. And, and it, it was only because I spent two years um, living and studying in Amsterdam that I really sort of understood that, um, whereas before my view of it was uh, the same as probably everyone else's, which it was, uh, you know, it's a place, it's a free-for-all, which is not like that at all. <laughs> so, Matt, your book, I, I was struck by the... The similarities between your books and the differences, they could not be more different in many ways. But they're also about 400 words each. They both start very arrestingly, very commandingly, so that nobody is going to put them down. Matt, tell us about your book. So it's called uh, Eeny Meeny, um, and it's about a serial killer who abducts people in pairs. Um, They're drugged, and when they come to, they're in a locked room uh, with a gun in front of them with one bullet in it. And the killer has told them it's up to them to decide who lives and who dies. And only when one of them kills the other one 
will they be released? So it's essentially a sort of moral drama about the um, uh, the victims who are abducted and whether they will kill another innocent human being in order to survive. When I was reading the book, I found myself thinking if I was in a room with my wife with that with that gun, I was thinking, well, I would surely do the noble thing and take that bullet myself. Do you think it's not that straightforward? Well, that that's the idea, really, is that I think that some of the couples know each other, their boyfriend and girlfriend or mother and daughter, but some of them are just work colleagues. And I think that that's what's interesting about the idea is it does become a bit of a parlor game in the sense of people are asking, well, should a man let a woman shoot him? Uh, should someone with kids be allowed to survive over someone who doesn't? Does that essentially make them more valuable um, and worth more? Um, or if you're in that situation and after two or three weeks you'd be you near know, starving and the rest of it, would there be something within you, just something innate that would want to survive and that might uh, override your morality in order to shoot someone and escape? And I think it's that was that's what interested me about that situation is just finding out whether there was a primal desire to survive within all of us. It's a very strong situation, and both of your books have these very strong scenarios. But you've also got extremely distinctive protagonists. So first of all, Jake, let's have the correct pronunciation of the name of your copper. Well, it's it's Yap Reichel. Yap Reichel. Yeah. Okay. Now, he's an unusual copper. He's possibly more conventional than the Matt's hero, but you chose a male protagonist. Yeah, I think uh, when I started out, I didn't, uh, I didn't have a, a plan for it as such, and I, I just sort of started with him, and, and then the the other two characters. Mm, tell us about the other two characters. So, well, I've got essentially three main characters. Um, the the second is uh, Tanya Vandermark, who is um, she's a, a sort of rural rookie in a way, um, and she's she's in a bad situation. She's desperate to escape um, her her sort of lifestyle, and then we've got um, we've got Keys, who is. Uh, He's a bit of a bad boy in a, in a way. He's not really temperamentally suited to being a policeman. So a lot of situations he gets himself into, it sort of throws him into conflict because he, he wants to be, or he's supposed to be doing the right thing, but his his instincts tell him to, to do otherwise. But their interplay is one of the pleasures of the book, which you must have enjoyed writing, I would guess. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, and, and when I got those three characters together, it just it suddenly, uh, it, 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 it took off. And, and, you know, I really love having that interaction between all three. Didn't you say, though, that they have a life of their own where you're concerned? That you're not quite sure that you know them, but they suddenly present themselves to you. Yeah, I, I, um, I, I wrote a piece recently, which was somebody asked me to write about, um, you know, how do I create my characters? And, and actually... I sat down and, and I struggled writing it. And, and the reason I struggled to write that piece was I realized that actually I don't create my characters. The characters just happen to be there. But what I do is I then create the world around these characters. I throw obstacles in their way and see how they react. So they, they I, I don't know how to really explain it, but they seem real to me. They, they're just there. They, they've, they've come from somewhere. And it's my job, uh, in a sense, to sort of slightly torture them and yes, we'll, we'll push get, them. We'll, we'll get on to your torturing of them. Now, speaking of torturing and extreme, uh, one has to say that the way you introduce Helen Grace, Matt, is distinctive. Would you like to tell us how you introduce her? Well, you first meet her during an S&M session. And... Um, only at the end of the chapter. You don't, you don't realise at this point who she is. You just realise she's a woman who, who enjoys pain. And right at the end, you reveal that you see her police badge and you realise that's, you know, and that's sort of how we introduce her. And I think that, you know, for me, I was sort of very influenced by the, by, um, the Scandinavian writers. And I think 
For me, Stig Larsson was the big one, and I think that particularly Lisbeth Salander, you know, I think... I wondered if her ghost was behind... Her ghost is very much sort of within Eeny Meeny. And, you know, I've always loved the baddies. And I'd never, I'd sort of, as I was thinking about trying to write a novel, I was thinking, well, how, you know, how can I make a good guy interesting? You know, good guys are so boring. And then I read Stig Larsson, and there's this amazing character, Lisbeth, who's the sort of most unlikely kind of investigator, and this sort of you know, appalling things have happened to her, but she still refuses to be a victim... You know, and I just thought, you don't have to make your characters boring. The good guys don't have to be dull. And that was an amazing sort of lesson to me, and it really inspired me. And I just wrote above, on the wall above my desk, you know, do not make your heroine dull. And that was what I just kept on looking at as I was writing Helen. That was Barry Forshaw talking to M.J. Arledge, author of Eeny Meeny, and Jake Woodhouse, author of After the Silence, about their debut crime books, which are out over the next few weeks, along with their audiobooks. And you can listen to the full interview on the Penguin SoundCloud channel, which is at www.soundcloud.com forward slash penguin dash books. This is the Penguin Podcast. Sherlock Holmes, Father Brown, Miss Marple, some literary sleuths simply leap off the page and into the public consciousness. One such legendary detective is Georges Simenon's irascible hero, Inspector Maigret. As of last November, Penguin are publishing all 75 of the classic Maigret novels, with one a month for the next 75 months. Here's an extract from the latest book, Night at the Crossroads. Detective Chief Inspector Maigret was sitting with his elbows on the desk, and when he pushed his chair back with a tired sigh, the interrogation of Carl Anderson had been going on for exactly 17 hours. Through the bare windows, he had observed at first the throng of salesgirls and office workers storming the little restaurants of Place Saint-Michel at noon, then the afternoon lull, the mad six o'clock rush to the metro and train stations, the relaxed pace of the aperitif hour. The Seine was now shrouded in mist. One last tug had gone past with red and green lights towing three barges. Last bus. Last metro. At the cinema, they'd taken in the film poster sandwich boards and closing the metal gates. And the stove in Maigret's office seemed to growl all the louder. On the table, empty beer bottles and the remains of some sandwiches. A fire must have broken out somewhere. They heard the racket of fire engines speeding by. And there was a raid, too. The Black Maria emerged from the prefecture at around two o'clock, returning later to drop off its catch at the central lockup. The interrogation was still going on every hour or every two hours, depending on how tired he was. Maigret would push a button. Sergeant Lucas would awaken from his nap in a nearby office and arrive to take over, glancing briefly at his boss's notes. Maigret would then go and stretch out on a cot to recharge his batteries for a fresh attack. The prefecture was deserted. A few comings and goings at the vice squad. Towards four in the morning, an inspector hauled in a drug pusher and immediately began grilling him. The Seine wreathed itself in a pale fog that turned white with the breaking day, lighting up the empty keys. Footstep pattered in the corridors. Telephones rang, voices called, doors slammed, charwoman's brooms swished by. And Maigret, setting his overheated pipe on the table, rose and looked the prisoner up and down with an ill humour, not unmixed with admiration. Seventeen hours of relentless questioning. Before tackling him, they had taken away his shoelaces, detachable collar, tie and everything in his pockets. For the first four hours they had left him standing in the centre of the office and bombarded him with questions. Thirsty? Maigret was on his fourth beer, and the prisoner had managed a faint smile. He had drunk avidly. Hungry? They'd asked him to sit down and stand up again. He'd gone seven hours without anything to eat, and then they had harassed him while he devoured a sandwich. The two of them took turns questioning him. 
Between sessions, they could each doze, stretch, escape the grip of this monotonous interrogation. Yet they were the ones giving up. Maigret shrugged, rummaged in a drawer for a cold pipe and wiped his damp brow. Perhaps what impressed him the most was not the man's physical and psychological resistance, but his disturbing elegance, the air of distinction he'd maintained throughout the interrogation. A gentleman who has been searched, stripped of his tie and obliged to spend an hour completely naked with a hundred malefactors in the criminal records office, where he is photographed, weighed, measured, jostled and cruelly mocked by other detainees, will rarely retain the self-confidence that informs his personality in private life. And when he has endured a few hours of questioning, it's a miracle if there's anything left to distinguish him from any old tramp. Carl Anderson had not changed. Despite his wrinkled suit, he still possessed an elegance the police judiciaire rarely have occasion to appreciate. An aristocratic grace, with that hint of reserve and discretion, that touch of arrogance so characteristic of diplomatic circles. He was taller than Maigret, broad-shouldered but slender, lithe and slim-hipped. His long face was pale, his lips rather colourless. He wore a black monocle in his left eye. Ordered to remove the monocle, he had obeyed with the faintest of smiles uncovering a glass eye with a disconcerting stare. That was a reading from Night at the Crossroads by Georges Simenon, which is available now. Finally, for this podcast, we turn to one of the most famous and important books about crime ever published, Fyodor Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment, the dark, troubling tale of the tortured, would-be intellectual Raskolnikov and the fallout that ensues after his cold-blooded murder of a pawnbroker and her half-sister. Here's Oliver Reddy, translator of the new edition of Crime and Punishment, talking about the book and Dostoevsky's extraordinary life. As novelists go, Dostoevsky had an exceptionally interesting life, um, a catastrophic one in many ways, um, but the catastrophes, however tasteless the juxtaposition, were undoubtedly enriching for him as a novelist. Um, so he writes Crime and Punishment in 1865, 1866, when he's um, already in his mid-40s and already feels himself to be an old man. Um, he still has ahead of him his main achievements, really, as a writer, including Crime and Punishment. But he already has behind him um, eight years in Siberian prison and exile in the 1850s. Um, going back a bit further to the 1840s, when he arrived in Petersburg, he first took St. Petersburg by, by storm with, with the publication of his debut novel, uh, Poor Folk. But that peak um, passed very quickly, uh, partly due to a second book, which was called The Double, and nobody understood, found it much too grotesque. Um, and then because he fell in with a group of, well, he fell in to some degree with a group of sort of utopians, socialists, and um, he read publicly a letter against the injustice of serfdom, which was still current in Russia. And uh, he was uh, sentenced to be executed in public, um, along with others in this group. And that execution was commuted at the very last moment to two years in prison in, in Siberia. Obviously an incredibly traumatic experience that helps us understand why he wrote a book called Crime and Punishment, although that's refracted in a very different way in the book. So then we get to the 1860s, and he manages to restore his reputation as a writer. He comes back to St. Petersburg. And he decides to write this novel about the present day. He wants to write a novel about St. Petersburg in 1865. And his own personal life is in ferment at the time. He's addicted to gambling. He has a crazy passion for this woman called Apollinaria Suslova, who he's chasing all around Europe. 
Um, he's also suffering from major epileptic fits. And he describes the St. Petersburg inferment in this book. He describes the St. Petersburg where serfdom has been abolished three or four years before, but injustice is everywhere, where the sort of estate system is collapsing, the class system, and you see a sort of new type of capitalism in St. Petersburg of pawnbrokers who charge most exorbitant interest, of prostitutes everywhere. And his main character is a 23-year-old student, Raskolnikov, who's fallen out of university uh, and is described in the first page as being suffocated by poverty. And he's, he spends the first 80 pages or so of this novel dithering about whether or not he should kill the pawnbroker who he's leaving his items, or as he calls them, pledges with. Um, he can't really see any reason why he shouldn't murder her. Um, he thinks he can do an enormous amount of good things with the money he would get from it. But on the other hand, he can't quite convince himself, and he does a trial run. He goes there to sort of inspect the premises, and he goes back again um, to what seems like it's going to be the real deed. That was Oliver Reddy talking about Fyodor Dostoevsky and his book Crime and Punishment. His new translation of that book is out now. And that's it from this Penguin podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to us on iTunes or head to our SoundCloud page for other author readings and audiobook extracts. You can get the SoundCloud stuff at www.soundcloud.com forward slash penguin books. And if you wish to delve further into the murky world of crime fiction, be sure to visit Dead Good at www.deadgood.com for competitions, giveaways, features and introductions to a whole host of crime books and authors. To find out more about the authors and books featured in this episode, visit the website thepenguinpodcast.co.uk and if you have any comments or suggestions, you can email them to podcast at uk.penguingroup.com or find us on Twitter at Penguin Podcast. You've been listening to The Penguin Podcast.